and welcome to what's this called? Cyberdeck Users Weekly, a bi-weekly show about technology and how to own it. My name is Paul Miller, and I'll be your host today. I uh, so this is one of those fun Saturday episodes where I just get to tell you what I think about things. And this one is gonna be about Bitcoin. You knew it was coming. You knew I was gonna I was gonna give it my best shot to try to convince you why Bitcoin is so good. And I gotta say, I really think of myself as one of the worst um, explainers of Bitcoin because there's something that happens to me mentally. And I've been trying to figure this out for myself just in general because it happens with a lot of things. But I've done a, I'm very fascinated by Bitcoin technically. And the actual real technical specifics like the lines of C++ that comprise, you know, the Bitcoin core uh, node software are are, you know, they're not the hardest thing in the world to understand, but they're not, you know, they're not simple. It's not um, itsy bitsy spider, you know. So, and I get, when I get fascinated by the technical aspects of something, I, I like to do that because I think that helps guide my larger understanding. And that, but that larger understanding seems to only be for my benefit. I have a hard time communicating my, lar- my larger understandings uh, that were somehow derived from these sort of more technical things. Uh, so I, I'm just going to give you that caveat that, um, I'm not the best explainer of Bitcoin. Uh, you know, it, you, you definitely want to check out like tales from the crypt is a podcast that I listen to, to get a better handle on it. Um, uh, I really like the noted Bitcoin, podcast uh there's a podcast called bitcoin audible or it used to be called the the crypto economy where this guy reads a lot of pieces by other people who have written about bitcoin um you can go to the satoshi nakamoto institute and see some of like the like the formative writings on bitcoin um you could read the bitcoin standard which is my favorite book on understanding bitcoin monetarily um there's a lot of really amazing resources to dig into, and this is not going to be sufficient. Uh, but I just wanted to tell you like what what a way I've been thinking about it recently, um, or one of the ways I'm thinking about Bitcoin. And the thing that's really been stuck in my head is is what does the future look like? What does a Bitcoin future look like? What what are we trying to achieve? We say we're into Bitcoin. Does that mean that I want my Bitcoin to be worth $100,000 so then I can sell it and then I have $100,000. Is that is like the, the dollar gains? Am I in it for, for that? Um, or do I just want to you know, dismantle the government in every, every possible way and therefore you know, uh, Bitcoin takes uh, one of their... Um, Monopoly powers away from them, and so therefore I like Bitcoin. Yes, that is actually <laughs> that's probably more accurate. But that that you know that sounds pretty wild. Uh, you know why hit the government so much, Paul? So the basic idea 
is that this would be a world with better money. That there's an important role that money plays in our society. And we don't have a great one right now. Uh, and if we had a better one, the role that that money plays is now, it's more efficacious. It's better money. And whatever money is for, whatever money's good at, the whole reason we have money and we use money, whatever those things are, if they could be an improve, improved upon, that sounds like it would improve our lives. You know, if, if um, airplanes fly faster and we use airplanes to get places, now we get places faster, you know? So if money is, has some reason, then if it's better money, then we're better off somehow. And, and so that's the, I think that's the kind of the why of Bitcoin. Uh, and so what, what does this world look like? Well, uh, I realized that that was my premise. And then what I wrote down as my notes, don't really fully flesh this out. And this is always frustrating for me when I listen to like, you know, like a, a, an anarchist podcast. They're all talking about anarchy and everything that's wrong with the state and coercion and monopoly on on force and 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 wars and stuff like that. And I totally am into it. Uh, but then it's always hazy. What does the actual future look like? And I don't know if I have a great answer here, but I'm tr I'm trying, man. I'm trying. Okay, so I wrote I wrote this out. I'm gonna put this in the newsletter. So I'm gonna be pretty heavily relying on my notes because I already kind of wrote I wrote paragraphs, not bullet points. So I'm gonna have to be kind of reading my own paragraphs a little bit. I hope that's okay. Uh, if you if you hate people reading things out loud, you can just read the newsletter. Um, so step one: hours for shoes. So money is an information system or protocol or whatever you want to call it that would sound really cool and technical to your friends, right? It solves the double coincidence of wants problem where if I have some time to give, right? Well, basically, I, I want shoes. Let's say I want shoes, right? The guy who is willing to hire me, who needs some work done, he needs like a, a hole dug in his backyard, so he can bury his Bitcoin wallet back there. I don't know. Um, he doesn't have uh, shoes. Uh, but there's another guy who has some shoes to sell uh, that he's willing to give up. But he doesn't have any work for me to do because he already made the shoes. So money is this intermediate good that, that solves this. Where we'll, we'll, we'll decide on this money protocol where... I do some work, I give my time and effort and, and ingenuity to someone else to, to subsume it to what they want me to do with that. And they give me money. And then I use that money to buy something. It sounds really simple because it is actually pretty simple. It's just this in-between good, but it solves the, the, the barter. Like barter is really fun if I have something that you want and you have something that I want and those two things are worth the same amount to both of us and we just swap and everything's fine, it's probably, more, I don't know, it's probably more efficient in some sense uh, it, in that scenario because you didn't need this inter intermediate, you know, intermediate good to like, you know, that could make everything confusing. You just swapped and that's great. Uh, but usually... Um, 
we don't have a double coincidence of wants. We don't have that perfect swap to do. So we use money as this go-between, right? And so these transactions that we do are signals uh, in this information protocol. I'm signaling in some sense that my time is worth X money units. And the shoe person uh, is signaling that his shoes are worth X money units. But the worth, right, we might ask for certain amounts or want certain amounts, but the worth really is resolved in the actual transaction. You get this solid number of what worth is when I get paid $25 or at least uh, for, you know, $25 an hour. Let's say the shoes are $100. I'm going to work four hours to save up enough money for shoes. Now, I would love to be paid for $10,000 like $10, an hour. And I, maybe I even think my time is definitely worth $100 an hour. Um, but I can't find anybody who will pay me that. So I settle for the highest amount I can think I can reasonably get, which is $25 an hour to dig this hole for this guy. And this shoe person might want to sell his shoes for, you know, billions of dollars or whatever. But he's going to sell them for um, however much he can get, get for them. And, and the reason why we end up settling on um, these, num these lowball numbers in some sense is that uh, if I charge $10,000 an hour for my time, then the guy's going to find someone else who will charge at least $9,999. You know, because we're in a system where there's other people participating, uh, the um, there's competition for the same scarce resources. My time is scarce. Um, this guy's money is scarce. These shoes are scarce. You know, we don't have infinite stuff and we don't have infinite time. And so there's competition. And so that kind of tends to drive the price down to something that we can both uh, uh, settle on and live with. So when I pay... $100 for the shoes. I did the four hours of work one day, took a nice nap, and here I am buying shoes. When I pay this $100, I'm signaling not just what those shoes are worth, but it's also kind of a signal that kind of goes recursively through everything that was involved in producing those shoes. So like the raw materials and the labor and the transportation and the shoe salesman gets a commission or there's marketing or whatever. And so if the shoe person, the shoe shoemaker can't get $100 for a shoe, but it cost him $100 to make, he's not going to get profit, right? So, and profit just is some sort of a stand-in for, can you keep doing this? If you make negative profit, if you make a loss, right, then you can't keep making shoes indefinitely because you slowly run out of money to buy, you know, the labor and the materials and stuff like that. So his alternatives, he could, he could uh, raise the price of shoes um, if he's not making a profit, but maybe then I can't afford them anymore because I'm not going to work five hours just for a pair of shoes. Um, he could use cheaper materials. He could uh, pay his workers less if they'll tolerate that. Um, yeah, he could just make worse shoes. Um, but yeah, or you could just change nothing. So they got to go out of business. So does this sound, it sounds like a protocol. There's like this sort of 
information passing, there's these signals, and there's this sort of, um, it sort of resolves, and you get these sort of results and these really cool emergent properties, like what we call an economy, which is individual people acting out of self-interest and, and with, you know, sort of, uh, with some quantity of freedom, hopefully, to, to choose, pick and choose and, and, and price their, their time and price their shoes. Uh, it's just an information protocol, and it's based on this thing of money. So what if this section is called inflation, colon, the enemy? What if we're using shitty money, right? We've got all these signals. We've got this sort of information system that's like moving value around or holding value in different places. So let's say we had like 10% daily inflation, which would be really bad. Um, it's not the most inflation that's ever happened, but it, it's more than we currently experience in the US. So let's say everything costs 10% more a day. So I would work four hours on one day and I'd get $100 for shoes. And then the next day, those sh- I go to the shoe store, but the shoes are $110, right? Um, and nothing changed about the the quality of the shoe or how much I wanted the shoe. It's just the number, right? And remember, these numbers, they're only sort of stand-ins for like, you know, I do $100 of work and then I, I get $100 worth of shoe, you know, and the money was just sort of the inter- intermediate. If the shoe guy would let me work four hours for a shoe, I would have done that. And, and, and just, you know, bartered that way and just got shoes directly, right? But something happened, this inflation event happened, and now shoe, one day later, shoes cost more money, but I, my money isn't worth more. Um, in fact, my money is, seems to be worth less, right? Like I had this $100 I was holding, I was planning, I was, you know, making savings, uh, planning for the future of, sh- of having shoes, um, but something happened. Um, now I could go into debt for the shoes and, uh, I know this shoe thing is a dumb, simple example, but this is really seems to be how we respond to inflation. I, I saved up a hundred dollars. The shoes are $110. I'll put it on a credit card and I'll pay later. I'll go back to the guy who asked me to dig a hole and work some more. And so I can pay off this debt. So the shoes end up costing, you know, 120 maybe because of of the interest payments or whatever. But I got the shoes, right? So my wants are fulfilled in the sense of the thing I was trying to achieve is achieved, but something kind of shitty happened to me along the way where I paid more than I was planning to. Uh, so there seems something wrong with this information system. So what is inflation? Like how does inflation happen? So the way I'm thinking of it is that inflation means there's more money numerically to represent the same amount of money informationally. Like there's amount of value in the system that's been created by people working and spending time and ingenuity um, to create new stuff, you know, to, to trade with each other. And, um, and that is a fact, but it's hard to put a number on it. And so money is the number we put on it. But if you make more money without doing more of that work, then 
you have inflation. Um, so you have more numerical money, but as far as what money was supposed to represent, like the stand-in for value, you have the same amount of it. Um, then the olden times when money was typically like precious metals, you do coin clipping. So you'd be, you'd be uh, like some despot running out of cash for whatever horrible things that you wanted to do. And so you're in charge of the, the mint, right? Where you print stamp your face onto these metal coins. Well, you just clip a little bit of the metal off. And now there's less of the precious metal in the coin. Um, and then you use that extra metal to make more of these debased coins. And now you have that money, right? And then really, in a very similar sense, we have all this different technology, but a very similar thing is happening. You don't have more money when you print more money. You have more numbers, <laughs> um, but you don't have more of what money is supposed to represent. So in our system, we have what's called the Federal Reserve, which is a central bank. It's a private bank, but the chair of the bank is appointed by our president. So it's really weird. I, I, I really don't understand how, how it ever got to this point. But so you have this private bank that is allowed to create money. Um, and the way it creates money is it puts money into other banks' accounts. Um, and sometimes it's as a loan. Some, I don't know. It's just, it's just it, it literally creates money out of thin air. You can go watch interviews with the actual Federal Reserve people. Like they, they're not like super shy about the fact that they just create money, right? And um, it's kind of a for it really ends up being like coin clipping, it's a sort of form of wealth redistribution, right? Because the, the economy, uh, us people all creating value, you know. Um, we've created a certain amount of value and we were sort of um, using our monetary units to to kind of keep track as well as, as this system can. Um, and now the Federal Reserve issues new money, prints new money, and it gives it to people at the top. It's like reverse socialism. It's, it's, it's an invisible tax on everybody I know I'm sounding really political right now, but really this is kind of the most straightforward way to think of it, um, is it's an invisible tax on everybody. Everybody's money is worth less. Like, you know, if you had $100 million in the economy and it was spread out evenly among everybody, and then one central entity printed 10 million new dollars and gave it just to their friends or, you know, to the banks, basically, um, the all everybody else's money is now worth less. So I like to think this is a classic drinking uh, your milkshake scenario. Um, it's it's kind of invisible, and uh, and then I've got this great imagery in my written piece that feels weird to say out loud, but I'm just going to do it. Uh, Federal Reserve drinks our milkshake via money printing. And then spits our milkshake into the mouth of baby bird banks. It's disgusting. Um, and so obviously, this inflation, this creation of new monetary units without creating actually more money in the value sense, um, doesn't cause immediate shoe price increases. Um, 
this is called the, the, the Cantillon effect, where you have this slow trickle of information of what money is now worth, right? Um, it starts at the money producer. The money producer has a bunch of new money, right? But everybody else is sort of behaving as if money is still worth what it was. And then the people who get the money first, um, which are people who can get like really low interest loans or banks, you know, banks issue loans with like what's called fr fractional reserve banking. Look, look it up if you've never heard of that because you're definitely gonna have your mind blown. They get this money first and they can buy up goods um, at this old rate of what we used to value money at. But once the money's all spread out through the economy, that's when we realize, oh, this money's just worth less now. So um, if you're close to the money spigot, you get more money, you get like, more money printed, right? You buy shoes for $100. And if I'm far away from the money spigot, I see these prices going up. And I, I am certain you can relate to this. I see prices going up and it seems like there's more money in the system. But for some reason, I don't have what feels like the same share of it that I used to. Um, the, the, there's inflation, prices go up, but it doesn't seem to, I don't, my income doesn't seem to necessarily track with that. Um, and uh, so like the shoe guy says to me that that guy from the bank can pay me $110 for shoes. You know, why can't you? And that's like a, a, a really visceral feeling that I get in our modern economy. Um, and there are definitely people who succeed in our economy. But I think there's a good portion of people who feel like they're not keeping up with what I'm terming here inflation. Uh, they're not keeping, like, you know, it's hard to save up for a house, for instance, you know. Um, houses are expensive, of course, but it's like the houses get more expensive faster than you save up for them. <laughs> um, and so you just, you know, take out a huge loan. And then the, the banks love that, you know. Um, so let's actually talk about Bitcoin finally. So the Bitcoin Genesis block, the very first block that was ever mined when the Bitcoin system was launched with this message in it. The Times, uh, January 3rd, 2009. So it's quoting a headline from the Times. Um, Chancellor on brink of second bailout for banks, which is just it's so good. It's so good. And... This is one of those little just things, like the more you dig into Bitcoin, I mean, lots of people know about the Genesis block, but like there's lots of little, just little tidbits about this. Like Bitcoin seems designed to address these problems that we have in our life. Um, so, but how, how is Bitcoin gonna solve this for us? Um, so Bitcoin has a set issuance rate. So every 10 minutes, a Bitcoin miner receives a, a block reward of 6.2, Two five Bitcoin for creating a block. Um, and blocks are just, they're a record of transactions that happened on the Bitcoin network. So when a Bitcoin miner creates a block and adds it to the blockchain, that, that, that's sort of adding to this immutable ledger of Bitcoin transactions. So this is securing the network in a sense. And so every about four years, every 210,000 blocks, this reward is cut in half. Um, and we just had a having. I'm sure you've heard, seen it, heard about it on, on Twitter. You know, we, we, we just had 
Bitcoin per block. And now we just cut it in half to 6.25. Um, and so now Bitcoin is already like scarcer than gold. And it's like in terms of its issuance versus the existing supply, the percentage of new Bitcoin per year compared to the amount of Bitcoin that already exists. Um, we're already at like 87% or something of the Bitcoin that will ever exist already in the system. So this is just, this is a hard cap on, on future inflation. We do have a slow quantity of monetary inflation in, the, in terms of um, increasing quantity of money. Um, and, but it's slowing to a crawl and then it will actually go to zero eventually. Just very different than our our current um, system. Uh, Bitcoin also allows anybody to participate in this uh, issuance, right? So in our in the U.S. system with the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve can print new money. If you print new money, you go to jail. In Bitcoin, anybody can be a miner. And now it's very difficult to mine Bitcoin profitably. You need cheap, you know, electricity. Um, you typically waste electricity, um, so you you might need to be in a special area that, to be able to take advantage of it, and you need to have the technical chops to run these like computers to to mine Bitcoin and stuff. But anybody could do it. Anybody could compete for these block rewards. So you get a, uh, uh, you're not going to get a even distribution, but it is in some sense fair because the the it's open for uh, competition. You can jump into it if you if you if you want to if you're interested. Um, and, uh, and like, and that's kind of, you know, it's different than gold. Obviously it's different than the federal reserve system, but even with gold, if the gold price shoots up, um, people can just like open up new gold mines. Like maybe they've got already bought the land. They know there's gold there, but it's not worth it for them to dig for it right now. Well, if the gold price quadruples or 10 X's or 10,000 X's, then it's worth it to dig for that gold. Um, and so then the supply shoots up again. Bitcoin can't respond to price shocks. When the value of the money goes up, uh, the, the, the issuance rate stays the same. And new miners come online, and here's like a little technical thing, uh, how it actually works, but new miners come online and they so blocks start getting produced faster and faster. Um, and then what's called a difficulty adjustment is, is, is made to try to reset to the average of 10 minutes. And um, so it becomes difficult to, more difficult to produce a block. So you go back to this 10-minute issuance rate. So the whole system of Bitcoin is designed around keeping this very steady and diminishing supply of money capping out at 10, or 21 million monetary units. And if you've believed me so far, and what I've been trying to say, and maybe I'm not doing the best job of explaining it, but the number of monetary units don't matter. It's it's really about the the value that is ascribed to those monetary units, and so it's easier to to ascribe value to a stable target, 21 million, than to ascribe value to this moving target that can just be you know printed willy nilly. Um, here, Bitcoin is the invention, I'm reading myself, um, of true digital scarcity. 
Uh, and, and it's something that's truly scarce for money, but it's also decentralized, which is even cooler. Um, or also cool. Um, and it's a, it, that's a much better system for money um, than something that can be printed infinitely by an elite few. And it just seems obvious, right? And we obviously have a, a I don't know what it's called, normalcy bias. We have this bias to like, this is how things are. So this is probably normal. But when you really think about it, what is money for? What's money good at? Why do we have money? What, you know, what are we trying to accomplish with this money thing? The fact that a centralized entity can print infinite quantities of it really sort of breaks the whole point of it, um, at least for most of us. Obviously, if some people really, really benefit from that, but I don't feel like I'm one of those people. So Bitcoin is sort of the, the, the finally, we have a really, truly hard money for this information protocol that, that, we, that we want for our economy, for our, our society. So let's think of hours for shoes in a Bitcoin world. So I am trying to give you a bit of a vision of the future. Obviously, it's fuzzy. but So let's imagine we had 10% uh, daily deflation. So everything gets cheaper by 10% because the money is worth 10% more every day. So the so the shoes would I would work one day for a hundred dollars four hours hundred dollars go to sleep wake up the next day the shoes I was planning to buy are now ninety dollars right now they're not worth less necessarily just it's just the monetary unit it's just the the accounting system, the way we're trying to track this value, it's that money got more valuable. And so obviously, this sounds amazing, right? This sounds like a paradise. Uh, it's way easier for me to plan for the future. I know that I can work and save, and the things that I want to buy, not only will I be able to afford them if they're the same price as what I was planning for, but they might even be cheaper. But does the shoe guy like this? Uh, and this is something where I really don't know enough of the e economics of it to understand. There's obviously a lot of people who think that deflation would result in some sort of horrible death spiral of an economy. And that's why we always have to keep printing money and we have to have inflation. I think those people are wrong. I just don't really know enough economics to exactly say why. Um, but if you, let's just go with sort of a loosey-goosey thinking through this, um, just logical. Um, let's say the guy gets $90 for the shoes, right? Yeah, maybe that doesn't match the like all the, the numerical amount of money that he spent on making the shoes. But if he didn't go into debt for it, he doesn't have anything to pay back. He's already made the shoes. And those $90 are really for future production and, and current profits. Um, and remember, everything is for him now is 10% cheaper as well. So he's fine for future shoe production. Um, he also could charge me $100 and I'd be, I'd be fine for it. But I, I just think the really interesting thing like, is imagine... I don't know, I guess I have this in my wrap-up too, but just imagine a world where you made the same amount of money every year, but everything kept on getting cheaper. That's the idea of deflation. Now, your boss might come to you and try to get you to lower your salary because everything is 
you know, the money is so crazy valuable now, but I don't know. I, I don't totally have a visual for how it would work out, but it sounds a lot better than our system. So, um, there's a, there's also this concept though, where you'd have a lot of creative destruction. And this is going to sound very libertarian of me. Um, but I think it's something that we're actually kind of lacking in our economy right now, especially with all these sort of bailouts of mega corporations. And the, the thing that really helped this click for me is this idea that the planes won't disappear if an airline goes out of business, right? So there, you know, especially from the perspective of like a, a, a lovable, uh, charming small business owner, it is sad when a business fails, right? And they go, they're, they're bankrupt and they can't pay their bills anymore. They have to lay off their employees. They have to stop making whatever they were making. But in another sense, in the larger economical sense, um, as this is an interconnected system, going out of business is awesome because it frees up uh, employees and Cap, like capital goods, like um, you know, machines and buildings and you know assets like that. In the case of airlines, airplanes, uh, for someone else who thinks they can do a better job. Now, it's not a guarantee that they'll do a better job, but it obviously wasn't working out. You know, you weren't making a profit as this business the way you were running it, right? And um. If you just get bailed out by money printers and and loans, uh, which is kind of what's happening right now, we're giving like these billion dollar billion billions dollars loans um, to huge companies that are failing. You're not um, that 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 all the employees that you had and all the capital goods that you had, all the all the airplanes that you have, aren't um, they don't go onto the market for cheap. And, and I, I, I really think that it's very connected to our, our, our money. It's not just like a government policy that, that happens because the way our money works because of the inflation and the way it's printed at the top and then given to banks directly, it's a lot easier to, to, to get debt than to get uh, money. It's a lot easier to take out a huge loan than to save up for the future. And so... When you have this very easy to get debt, if your business isn't working out, it's always easy to you know take on more debt. Or obviously, in the the case of uh, co companies uh, currently, uh, while times are good, you take on debt to buy your stock back, but you don't have any money in reserves for when times get bad. And when times get bad, you take on a, on an even lower interest loan to, to you know, keep play, paying your employees. And so without this creative destruction, these resources never get back into the, the pool of these airplanes. I can't go buy these airplanes for cheap and start Paul Airlines because this bad, inefficient, ineffectual airline is still in business uh, because of, of all this debt floating around. Um, yeah, so... Planes don't disappear is, is, is the point of this. Um, and hopefully, 
you know, whoever buys that next will, will do a good job with it and maybe, you know, create a lot of value. And remember, when you create, create a lot of value, maybe I haven't really explained this, but in a voluntary transaction, both people come out ahead by definition. Um, an involuntary transaction, it's involuntary because someone feels like they're getting cheated. But in a voluntary transaction, it's like, ah, I think that money is worth more than four hours of my time. And then I think that shoe is worth more to me than $100, right? It's not, not that it's for everybody, everywhere. Just for me, subjectively, these, I, I can make these decisions. And then on, either in, on the other end of both of those exchanges, those, those people feel the same way about that transaction. So we're, we're constantly creating value when we, when we transact. Um, and, and so as that productivity and efficiency and value of the economy rise, in some sense, all of our, our, our wealth can, can kind of rise together. Um, there's this really fun example I just heard in this computer, this book about the PC. Um, I should put a link to this in my newsletter. Link. Um, the PC... <laughs> a personal computer revolution, like when people in the 70s figured out how to make computers as hobbyists and then started selling them um, and made companies. And then you ended up with like companies like Apple and Microsoft, of course, uh, and HP and whatever. So um, they were giving the history of Radio Shack. And Radio Shack was a business that was going bankrupt in the early 60s, got bought by a leather goods manufacturer called Tandy uh, for $300,000. Of course, you don't know what $300,000 and I don't know what $300,000 mean because you got to inflation adjust everything. See, the information is confusing. Um, but it's not the most money ever. And, uh, and it was going out of business. And Tandy turned that business into Radio Shack. Like the Radio Shack that like was world dominant and like the most ubiquitous electronic store ever, and then you know eventually Radio Shack went bankrupt again. You know, so it's not there's no guarantee of future success, but there's this real opportunity for things that are failing in the hands of one person to possibly be very effectively employed by another person, and we all benefit from that because because more value is, is created in this economy. Um, so one of the ways I think of Bitcoin is that. All things being equal, like GDP could be kind of like a stand-in for how much value has been created um, or, or sort of a proxy or somehow related to how much value has been created in that year, the gross dom domestic product. Like, what did we create? And I could imagine a good money that... Everybody gets about GDP. You have a hundred dollars, and then the economy does creates a lot of value and is more efficient and more productive. And now that hundred dollars gets worth that much more, that percentage richer. This is after hyper Bitcoinization. Bitcoin can also, you know, gain a lot of value um, in dollar terms in 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 the in the near term, just of people, you know, moving into the Bitcoin system. But what's, with a fully mature Bitcoin system, 
I can imagine that whatever money you're holding becomes X percentage more valuable based on basically how much more efficient and productive um, the economy is. Um, so what, one way I think about this is with farming. So I looked up the numbers for this. In the last couple of decades, like I think it's something like from 1990 to like now, we globally, we went from about 50% of people on earth employed in agriculture to about 25%. And in the U.S., it's like 1%. But obviously, in the U.S., we don't just eat food that we make. We eat other people's food, too. Um, but I don't know what the ratio is with, you know, maybe we actually produce enough food with just a 1% of our workforce um, to feed everybody in the United States. But let's say it's actually it's something like 25%, right? So, we from 50 to 25% 20 years. But... It, I mean, in, in a simple economy, right, with nothing changing, you've had a constant amount of numerical money and a constant amount of efficiency, the prices would stay the same, right? So, like, in the 1970s, bread was 25 cents. Um, milk was 62 cents per gallon. A college was 12, like, state college was, like, $1,200 a year. Like, that was upper end of a state college. Um, but obviously things aren't staying the same. We are getting more productive, like with the farming, right? So why isn't food half as expensive as it used to be? Let's say money was, you know, whoever's at the Federal Reserve printing money was doing like the absolute best job ever. They were a magician. They were a wizard. And they only printed money to exactly amount, match the amount of new value created, Right. So you'd have some sort of stable money, but you, we clearly had huge efficiency gains in farming. So why is food not half as expensive as it was in 1990? I, I, it's definitely not. Um, there are, uh, and, and, and if you think about it, like there's so many things that are like this where we are getting more productive and efficient as a society. Sometimes it almost feels like we're we're running out of treadmill. We're trying to keep up with inflation so that things can stay the same price, um, uh, you know, because they're more efficient or cheaper to produce. Like think about, you know, how, how many people are involved now to make a loaf of bread versus in the 1970s or to distribute a, a gallon of milk. Like we're clearly more efficient at these things. Um, college is... It's a different topic for a different podcast, but um, there's a really cool uh, link I'll put in the, the newsletter, but uh, WTF happened in 1971. And you can see, this is actually when we went off the gold standard, sorry, spoilers, but um, you can see how crazily prices increased and sort of prices diverged from income after we, we went off what was sort of anchoring our money supply to some, some style of reality to just being pure uh, willy-nilly uh, money printers. So I really, this is the future. This is, this is what I'm very focused on. This is why Bitcoin is so interesting to me. The future is you, you, you earn money, you save money, and things get cheaper over time. And if you need them right away, you're sort of paying a premium for that. Um, you, you have to pay more to get something right now. 
if you wait later, it will be cheaper. And so you just make that decision that, you know, for whatever situation you're in. Whereas right now, if you wait, um, I mean, it's hard to wait, you know, 20 years to, to, to buy a loaf of bread. But if you did wait 20 years, you'd be sorely disappointed in yourself for doing that. Because the price had, you know, 4x or 8x, you know, and your salary didn't necessarily rise that much. So, uh, you know, you're just not as well off in some sense. Um, and now there are things that have gotten actually cheaper, like big TVs and stuff. Like what inflation adjusted, if you did really good math, it's still, I think, better and cheaper to buy like a computer or a TV or a wireless phone, you know, than comparable versions in the past. One, they're, they're higher quality, they're better, um, but they've also been made much more efficient to produce. Um, so we're not 100% losing, but that's all. those are these miracles of technology. Whereas if we didn't need a miracle to beat inflation, you could imagine so many things in your life getting progressively cheaper. And then like, like what do you do with yourself then? Like one more side note on this. So this is the subsection monetary premium, which is a whole nother thing in economics. But we have a lot of, because we have, well, money that goes down in value rapidly and and consistently. Uh, everybody knows there's this whole concept of wealth management. Everybody knows that if you have money, you have to put it into something that won't depreciate like this, that can hopefully outrace inflation. So like the stock market or one of the big ones in the US is houses, right? So you when you... A pleb, when me, a pleb, I go out and I want to buy a house, right? I'm not competing against people who are trying to also buy their first house. I'm competing against people who are buying their 10th house because they need a way to park their wealth for future uncertainty, you know, to hedge against this devaluation like maybe they'd love to be investing in businesses that, that would, you know, do cool things and make it cheaper to make bread and milk or whatever but the safest thing for them to do is to buy houses um and this this is called a, a monetary uh, premium um so again of course i go into mega debt if if i could ever even get approved for that loan um it's not cool it's not awesome and i think in a more rational economy i might be able to afford a house if you think about in the past in the U.S., it was much easier to buy a house. And I can't imagine it's been made more expensive in terms of the actual time dedicated to the inputs of a house. And yet somehow, a lot more people seem to be able to buy houses back in the day uh, than they're capable of now. And there's something kind of messed up about that. Like, why are we getting, in some senses, poorer as a society over time? Um, so, yeah. The Bitcoin future. What the, the the in a nutshell, it's like what if you everything you bought got cheaper every year, but your salary stayed the same. Imagine that world. Like you'd eventually go to space, right? Like, well, okay, my food is paid for, and it's slowly becoming like a negligible percentage of my income, right? 
and my housing is paid for. I own my house outright, you know, so I'm good on that. My utilities are slowly going down because we get more efficient and effective at creating energy and stuff like that. So everything in my life is getting cheaper. And also trips to space are getting cheaper, you know, over time. But my income is staying the same. Um, and I don't fully understand a deflationary economy. Maybe your income wouldn't stay the same. Maybe, maybe this is just a marginal improvement over the current system, but it can't be worse than every year I feel like I'm treading water at best or drowning. I can't keep up. I get more into debt. It's hard to pay off the debt I already have. Um, I can never own anything of value because all my money has to go to credit cards and college bills and things like that. Um, and <laughs> it's a joke to think that I could save for my kids so that they could go to college because college is going to be $4 million a year by the time they're ready to go to school. And I'm not, I'm definitely not doing that well. Um, I think the deflationary economy, even if it's not a paradise, and I, d I doubt it would be, um, I think it's so much better. Um, and so, yeah, so let me just read from my thing for the wrap-up. Um, so I'm, I'm really concise and succinct and good, good at this. Human material needs are in some sense finite. But human wants are infinite. Human time is absolutely finite, but human ingenuity, the ability to do more with the same amount of time, is multiplicative and exponential. In an economy, we create value as we transact voluntarily. And in an economy with money, we use money as an intermediary to store that value we create. In a Federal Reserve economy, that value creation is skimmed off the top and given to banks so that they can give us more credit card debt. In a Bitcoin economy, we all get to benefit from value creation. Bitcoin wouldn't fix theft or the desire to steal. It just makes theft no longer our national monetary policy. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Um, so yeah, that's 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 what I think about Bitcoin as far as... And so, you know, obviously this isn't a very technology-centered episode. Uh, and I'm sorry for that, but there's a reason for technology. What is tr technology trying to unlock? And in this sense, Bitcoin is this... It's a piece of open-source software, you know, written in C++ by a pseudonym on the internet who, who, who that, that has this capability that we didn't have before where I have perfect digital scarcity uh, or, or as perfect as you could, as we know how to get much more perfect scarcity than we've ever had before with anything. And, 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 and something like that, that's also fungible and transferable, um, Fungible just means you can like slice it up and, or I don't know. I don't know what fungible means, but it's all sorts of good things that are, you would want out of a money. And so this technology invention created a new money, but that money is, is going to be a directly very political thing in the sense of it's a challenge 
to existing powers and power structures and people who currently benefit from a Federal Reserve central bank system. And so, yeah, to me, it's a technology and it's fascinating, it's beautiful, but the what it it means as a, a societal impact is um, is it's more important because that's the whole point, you know? You don't get there without the technology. But the point of technology is what does it do for society? And this is, I think, a very fundamental shift and a beautiful um, revolution in the sense of shoes could be $90 tomorrow instead of $110. Uh, and prices could, could drop over time for essential goods. And all that means is that you're getting richer. Instead of trying to tread water, you're looking around like, what do I do with all my money? I guess I gotta go to space. So that's the plan, that's Bitcoin. Um, I wanna thank uh, you for listening. I wanna thank all of the wonderful uh, Patreon supporters. I'm so grateful for that. And it's been uh, super helpful. And um, we're on Apple Podcasts now. That's huge. Um, still, you know, lining up guests. Let me know who you think I should be talking to. Uh, and um, I love doing this podcast. I love being able to talk uh, directly uh, to, to y'all. And so thank you for listening. And thank you for subscribing. And have a, a very good day. Thanks, Paul. <laughs>